Hey, Dee. Since we're recording this so much earlier than normal, we aren't going to be able to report on how those temperatures in the teens affects my pansies and violas and your roses. Right. We won't know. So do you want to make something up, perhaps? Well, I'm all for making stuff up, but I think what we'll do... (laughs) is I'll put something on the very end of the podcast. I'll do a little segment and say, hey, this is what happened. Okay, better plan. Uh, Listeners, you'll have to listen until the end of the podcast to find out how our gardens fared with temperatures in the teens for a few days, which I got to say just makes me mad. Uh, We got to roll with it, Dee. I know. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden on seven and a half acres out in the country. And I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana. I have a suburban garden measured in square feet, about a third of an acre. We call ourselves Garden Angelus because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want you to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. Hello, Dee. Hello, Carol. How is your garden right now? Well, so we are recording this two days after we recorded the episode for this week. So it's still cold. Uh, but the sun is shining and, you know, the the crocuses, the iris reticulata, the snowdrops, they're kind of in their glory when the sun shines. And even though it's a bit chilly, the bees are coming out. So, but I did notice, Dee. Yeah. There's a spot up front that could use with some more early flowering spring bulbs like crocuses and irises. And so I'm taking some pictures. I'm putting that up on my Trello board. So later in early summer, when I order more bulbs, and I will order more bulbs, I'll remember to get some for that spot. Good idea. How about your garden? I'm sure I have some spots that need bulbs too, but I should go out and look at the front yard. Um, It's cold here, but we're going to go up in the mid 50s this afternoon. And I have a new garden coaching client. I am so busy with garden coaching right now, which is nice. Because then I can buy myself more stuff that I like to buy. (laughs) More plants for the garden. Yay. It's sunny too here. And that really makes me happy. But that's part of the reason why it's going to be so cold tonight. That's okay. I think here's here's my quandary. And I'm going to bring you in on it. I'm thinking about putting the roses inside the greenhouse. I've I've held off, you know, because I don't want them to break dormancy. And if I put them in there for two days they're going to break dormancy. And then when I bring them back out, you see what I mean? And they're going to have to be in the center aisle. So it's not like I can just leave them in the greenhouse. There's not enough room for them in the greenhouse. I'm just making room just long enough to keep them from dying. I don't know if they'll make, I can't decide what to do. Decisions, decisions. I don't know what to tell you. Do you have an unheated garage or shed? I do. It's way far away from where they are right now, but I could put them all back in the That's probably the best idea is to take my tractor, my little garden tractor with the cart behind it, put them all back in there because they're in big pots because they were big plants and then move them all back into the garage. That's what my friend uh, Teresa did up in Tulsa with her bulbs that are in pots. She moved them all back into her garage. So uh, you know what? That's probably the best thing to do. That way they won't break dormancy, which I don't want them to do yet. And um, because, you know, it's 70 degrees in the greenhouse. That's too, they will break dormancy and they'll probably be blooming before you know it. 
Really too early. And I can't just leave them in there either. There's not enough room. So thank you for helping me with my decision. You're welcome. And so for my violas and pansies, I have decided Mm -hmm. that I'm going to put um, like mulch on top. I'm going to do trimmings from the garden. I'm going to mulch them up and then I'm going to make a real loose mulch and put those on top of the violas. We'll just see what happens. I'm sure they're going to survive. I think they'll be fine. I do. I do too. Stop worrying. It's just gardening. Yeah, all the time. Uh, spring, it's it's really fun, but it's always really, you know, one foot in the garage, one foot out of the garage. That is true. And so now I will do a quote and I've updated our show notes, D, so we don't have to ask whose quote it is anymore because I've noted it. <laughs> That's nice of you. I appreciate that. Here's the quote. And by the way, this is a St. Patrick's theme because this is the week of that's got May 7th, March 17th in it. So that's right. the theme. For each petal on the shamrock, this brings a wish your way. Good health, good luck, and happiness for today and every day. An Irish blessing. I like that. I like that a lot. So today's flower topic is one of my favorite ones, and I'm so glad we're doing it today. I, I'm kind of surprised it's your favorite, but it is an important topic as we're heading out to the greenhouses and garden centers to buy plants. We thought we'd talk about what's the difference between an heirloom plant, a patented plant, a trademark plant. Is one better than the other? And by the way, should you buy only name brand plants? Like, So you want to know why I find this a, a very interesting topic? Because you used to be a legal assistant. Well, that's probably part of it. Um, I like anything that has to do with the law. Um, But part of it is also because when I first started writing about gardening, there were no trademark plants yet. There were cultivar names. Yep. And there were patents, but it was very, I mean, nobody really knew about it. And then all of a sudden during my writing career, it became all this complication about Patented plants, trademark plants. What's the name of the real cult? The real cultivar name, which a lot of times hybridizers will choose a really, and you put one in here, a really like unusual cultivar name because they don't want you to use that name. They want you to use the trademark name. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of us. So why don't you talk first about? And by the way, I used to do patents and trademarks and service marks. That was part of my job as a legal assistant when I worked for Scrivener Corporation, which no longer exists. But I kept track of all of that and did all of those. That's why I was able to trademark my blog pretty easily. That's good. Go ahead. So you trademark plants at the patent office, just like you had a new invention. And Mm -hmm. you can trademark any plant that's asexually produced um, and comes out pretty true to type each time. And by asexually produced, it means it isn't produced from, how would you put it, like from seed. So you don't have a male plant and a female plant, which creates a seed and then creates a new plant. Because that's a, technically a whole new plant because it's a little different every time. These would be plants that someone has worked really hard in the test tubes, usually, to create. Yeah, well, they, they've done all their crossing, and but in order to get a lot of them, they have probably gone to tissue culture or massive cuttings or things like that. So mm-hmm. the interesting thing is you can't patent, and I didn't understand this, a tuber propagated plant. Huh. And you can't 
patent something that you found out in the wild in an uncultivated state. So you can't find like a native, a native plant and then say, I'm going to patent this so nobody else can grow it. And the whole point of the patent is so that all your hard work and effort and money, yeah, won't be taken up by somebody else who says, oh, I like that. And then they begin producing that plant and selling it and kind of taking all the wind out of your sails. And that's the same with all the patents to protect your your in this case, I guess the intellectual property is the thoughts you had to to create this plant by crossing this and crossing that. So, it, it, well, it has to do with your time, your effort, your money. And right. when when I went to California Spring Trials in 2015, I was fascinated more by the back end of the of the business than the front end, which that really surprised the people at National Garden Bureau that we were more fascinated by this aspect of it. But to me, this is the most interesting part about growing plants. I mean, in, you know, like in a nursery setting, I think that's boring, but this part's really interesting. And the reason, one of the reasons it's really interesting is it takes, once someone comes up with a plant and creates it, it takes usually five years to get it to um, come to retail. Right. So think about the back end of that. It takes a long time to do a patent for a plant, to get a plant good enough that you're willing to patent it and then you trademark it. And so the trademark is just a name and that's good for 10 years unless it's renewed, which I've renewed my, and there's a difference between a trademark and a service mark. And we don't have to go into all of that because plants are not service marked, but trademark is the name. And once it's trademarked, no one else can use that name. And there are a lot of trademarked names now on in this in this industry, which I, I it was hard as a writer, but I understand what they do it, why they do right. it. Right. And I want to say that the patent lasts for 20 years. And once you have a patent, if another person is going to grow it, they have to license it pay from you. A fee. You. They have to pay yes, you. They a have fee. to pay you a fee. Right. Which is the which is the important part of this. And they're I wrote about this at the end of our deal, but you can go ahead. Let's go ahead and first talk about heirlooms. Well, an heirloom plant is one that basically has been grown like for 50 years plus and usually Mm -hmm. is handed down from one generation to next. And often these come true from seed. So they're open pollinated varieties. And you often see heirlooms, especially in the vegetable garden. You do. And I think you also see them in really standardized things like uh, phlox paniculata, just the plain old pass along phlox that could be considered an heirloom, although it's not done by seed, it's done by division, but that's not something anybody would patent. Is no, what I'm getting or at. like plain old lily of the valley. Right. People just pass that along and it's okay. And it can be sold and nobody has to pay anybody a license to grow it. And then there's such, there's such a thing as name brand plants. And that's where a brand puts their name along with the trademark name often. Yeah. And the most, the number one brand out there, proven winners. Right. Proven winners. And proven winners will go to these companies and say, you've got a new hybrid and I really like it. Or one that's been in the business for a little bit. Let's call it this trademark. Or sometimes they use their trademark. But if proven winners is doing a series and I'm trying to think of a good series that they run, but there's so many. Well, I can think of a series, but it's not proven winners. It's it's uh, ball horticulture. It's the, the sorbet. Yeah, use ball. 
the sorbet series of violas, for example. Right. That's a great, that's a great series. And so um, there's a lot of different um, series now, and then they bring in more trademarked plants under that series. So sometimes you'll see a plant that has a company name like proven winners or ball horticultural or drum and dumb and orange, which they don't put their name on things. They, they like it on the tag down at the bottom. And then right. you'll see a trademark for the series. And then you'll see a trademark for each individual plant. So it gets really kind of complicated. It does. And so I gave the example of Viola and the, the variety name is Flovable. Yeah, F-L-O, that's that. <laughs> F-L-O-V-E-L-B-L. Which, so that's that that's, cultivar name that nobody's yes. going to use. And that's that's the intent. They don't want you to use that name. What do they want you to call it? They want you to call it Velocity. That's the trademark. Baby Blue. And Velocity is a whole series. And here's another little thing about trademarks that having worked in them. When you see a name and it has the TM behind it, it means they have not been awarded the trademark yet. They have applied for the trademark. When you see the R in the circle, that means it's been awarded, that they are allowed to use it as a trademark for sure. Because there's a period of time where you have to show that it's in use and that you're the only one who uses it, uh, yada, yada, yada. So there's that. And then you brought up, should you buy only name brand? And, you know, in some cases, there's no choice because that's the only thing out there. So if you want Velocity Baby Blue Pansies, you're going to have to buy that name brand because it's it's somebody's name brand. And you'll either buy them as plants or depending upon what you're talking about, sometimes you can buy a seed. It just depends on the company. And Pan American Seed has a lot of seed trademarked plants and because that's what they do, seeds. And other people do stuff through tissue culture and... Um, propagation. So I hope this wasn't too complicated. Now I'm going to talk about the dark side. Yeah, there's there's several dark sides. One dark side to it is there are some wholesale to retail nurseries, and I'm not going to name who they are. They will grow patented trademarked plants with no markings so they can keep from paying fees to the hybridizer. I have seen it. It makes me mad and I won't buy them. And one of the reasons I won't buy them because I can tell you what I've know enough about. But see, your average whole, average consumer doesn't know that this is a trademark plant. But because I've been in the business so long, and you have too, there's a lot of plants that you definitely know that's that plant when you see it in a pot. Right. But on the tag, it'll just say Viola, or just Echinacea. It might. It won't say Echinacea uh, Tiki Torch for example. And that, that upsets me because I think that's wrong. It's exactly the same thing as taking someone's photos that have been watermarked or writing, taking their writing and not paying them for it. And um, they can be in big, big trouble for doing this too. They can. And so the, the big name brands will send out inspectors. So if you buy, say a little bit from a company, They'll send inspectors and they'll make sure that you are growing it according to how they tell you to grow it. And many times they say it must be in the pot that has the brand on it. You can't just take right. a, a plain black pot and put it in there. You have to put it like, for example, proven winners wants their plants grown in a proven winners container. And it it is kind of hard for the growers, I think, because sometimes um, maybe that, you know, those 
that material is more expensive than using some other type of pot. So it does make it much more expensive for the growers to do it. But if they want to have a relationship with proven winners, for example, then they have to do it according to what their contract says. And so this is all very interesting. And there's also a thing about it that it's some growers do not get paid for their work until what's called POS or point of sale. And so that's the moment that the big box store Uh, I know Home Depot does a lot of point of sale stuff because you'll notice that they don't really put plants on a sale rack um, ever. (laughs) That's because they don't pay for plants until they sell them. So the grower doesn't get paid. And so if they have to pay all this upfront money for materials, it makes it kind of, you know, it's expensive. And one time a grower had a long conversation with me about that at California Spring Trials. Yeah. And the, the sad thing is, I'm not saying don't go to Home Depot to buy plants. No, not at all. I bought plants. Because Home Depot doesn't pay the grower until they've sold the plant. Right. They often do not have the incentive to care for the plants because right. it's not their money on the line. And so I will sometimes, you go to Home Depot and also Lowe's is another one. You will see somebody from the grower there tending to the plants because they're like, I'm not we got to sell these things and they have to be in good shape, but we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll talk more about that in a minute and about sales racks and stuff. Are are we done with this topic? Are you ready for me to do the quote? Yeah. Okay, cool. You've got to do your own growing, no matter how tall your grandfather was. Irish proverb. Very thought provoking, isn't it? Be your own person. That's right. Can't, can't ride the coattails of your ancestors. So moving on from what we were talking about before, now we're at, we're, this is a great transition, as they would say. Yes. So now we're going to talk about Carolyn D's most excellent tips for shopping at greenhouses and garden centers this spring. Yes. For both vegetable and flower plants exactly. or indoor plants or succulents or whatever. So here you go. So I will say this about Lowe's. Lowe's tends to buy their plants, and that's why you see sales racks, which is a difference from Home Depot. At least that's how it's always been in the past. I cannot speak to what is going to happen next week because I don't know. But that's why you will see the sales racks. And I have some friends who really love to shop on the sales racks. But Carol has a caveat for you. I do. You do. If you are going to buy something on the sales rack... What are you going to look for? Something that's still in relatively good shape. And what does that mean? I mean, because you, I mean, it's right here. What, what do people say? Like, just because it's on sale. Okay. First of all, I also worked in retail for six years while I put myself through college. It was clothing retail, but it was retail. If something goes on the sales rack, whether it's clothing or a flower or a plant, it can mean a lot of different things. With clothing, I can almost assuredly tell you that if this one pair of pants is all in every size on a sales rack, that means those pants don't fit right. Yeah. <laughs> because nobody bought them, right? Right. Um, if all the large sizes are left, it means they ran big. If all the small sizes are left, it means they ran small or whatever. I guess I got that backwards. But the point is, there's a reason stuff is on the sales rack. And at Lowe's, it's the same way or wherever you're whatever place you're at. When they mark stuff down, it means they either bought a whole lot of it and it's a loss leader, which is to get you in the door and get you to buy other things. It could be that. Yep. Or it could be half dead. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So 
I, you know, I will look at the sale racks, but I Me rarely too. buy anything off the sale rack unless it's so unusual. It's like, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. Let me give it a shot. Now, we know some people that have a relationship with the, the box store manager. And so they know kind of when things are being moved and they kind of do things yeah. at a certain time. Yeah. So they know just like people knew that after two months at CR Anthony company, where I worked, that that was when we did our first markdown, 20% off. That was the beginning one. It's the same thing with J Jill or anywhere you shop. And so it's the same way at Lowe's or at other places, you're going to see stuff go on sale for a reason. You don't want to buy something that looks like, we'll, we'll talk about your favorite flower, the pansy. Yes. Pansies come in, it gets really warm in Oklahoma in the spring, and then the pansies get really leggy. You don't want and to, so, yeah, then they're shot. Then they're shot. I mean, you can pinch them back, but our weather gets so hot that you probably won't have a chance to enjoy them. It would be better to go buy something that handles the heat a little bit better by that time. Right. And so when you're looking for flowers, and especially flowers, look for those that have buds, but not blooms. Although people want to buy them in bloom because, oh, they look so pretty. And then, mm-hmm. you know, like they buy a, a, I'll call it a rhododendron. They bring those in. They look so pretty. They buy them in bloom. And then they realize that around here, it's only going to bloom for a couple of weeks. And then it's not a very particularly attractive shrub, especially in Indiana where we don't have the acidic soils. So right. Don't buy rhododendrons in Oklahoma and Indiana. They they aren't going to be very happy. No. But they they bring them in, they've got beautiful flowers, and people look at them like, okay, it's got a beautiful flower. I'm going to buy it. So you Azaleas. Yeah. Azaleas. I can think of so many things. Yes. Okay, for example, here's another great example of that. Right around, right before Mother's Day, they bring in a ton of roses. And it's usually whatever new roses are on the block or it's knockouts, right? Whereas your local grower, your local nursery has bought those roses early and has potted them up themselves and has nurtured them along for you where you're going to find a bigger selection. Now, you may find the newest rose at one of the box stores because um, they have special deals that they make with the hybridizers for maybe one year, but those may also be crummy roses. So my suggestion is don't rush in there and buy your mother a rose, especially if it's sitting in the parking lot on top of the asphalt right before Mother's Day. Because that ro- that rose has been rushed and it it's and it's too hot because it's been on the seam, you know, on the right, asphalt. Right. Because it's dark asphalt. Roses are an example. Another one are big flowered hydrangeas, hydrangea macrophylla or macrophylla. Oh yeah, those things. They always look so great. And you know, they sell them with um blue blooms around here. And then people plant here them too. in the garden. And it's like it's never gonna be blue. Not that shade of blue. Because they put the acidifier, yeah. yeah, they put the acidifier in the pots, and that's how they get that shade of blue. And they've nurtured them along in a greenhouse to get them at the peak moment, and then they send them to you. And so you might be able to get it blue somewhat by adding acidifier to the soil around it out in the garden, but it's never going to be the same. And frankly, most of those hydrangeas don't love it in my state. They probably love it where you live. Uh, they do all right. But- but D, they're pink. We're, we're kind of we're kind of painting a dark picture about buying plants in retail, <laughs> and we don't mean to. Most of the plants, no, no, you know, it's the old eighty twenty. Maybe it's not the eighty twenty rule, but 
most of the plants are just perfectly fine. And so these are just some, right. some traps not to fall into. And so you talked about, you know, is the plant well rooted? And so I've been known to tug on a plant to pull it out of its pot to see how many roots it does have, which is now <laughs> I've never done. that. Oh, I have. <laughs> well, you know, I bought, I bought um, like a house plant before and it's like, I got it home and the whole thing just sort of fell apart. It's like, it's barely rooted. Oh, I've had that happen when I've gotten mail order houseplants before where it was just some cuttings that they stuck down in the potting yeah. mix. And so I see exactly what you're talking about. I tend to think that most of the time, like little shrubs, like let's talk about boxwoods quickly because boxwoods are a big deal. So boxwoods are often like root bound in the pot. Yeah. So it might be good to look at that. Now you can tickle those roots and settle them in. And honestly, Asian boxwoods love Oklahoma. English boxwoods don't. So they're a good category. But yeah, I can see why you might do that. So I tug I tug gently. I don't like, you know, like manhandle it or anything. I tug it gently to make sure that it is got some roots to it. And then, you know, I'll look at the bottom of the pot to see are those brown roots or, you know, do the roots look healthy? And so I'll, I'll, yeah, are they white? Now, a lot of times you can't pull the plant out because it's so root bound. And then you got to think about, you know, can it come out of it and just, yeah. And can you settle it in? Okay. And what kind of plant it is. So there's a lot to think about in the store, I guess, instead of just buying blindly, but you know, you brought up another thing. I'm going to tell you something, D if you're walking around with a smartphone, there is no reason you should ever buy a plant that you know nothing about. Because you can look up on your phone, all the information is somewhere out on the internet, and you can look up that plant sure. name. I, I wouldn't use, I don't use those plant identifying things, but I will look stuff up if I have never heard of it before. I look it up um, just, to, Me too. just to better understand it and to know if it's something that's going to do well. Because right, they don't always, not everything at the big box stores especially is actually going to do well in this climate because they bring stuff in. They don't, they don't care. Well, they care, but they don't, they, they care, but they probably, you know, buy so much of like the rhododendrons, for example, they're going to ship them into Indiana. They're going to ship them into Oklahoma. At least the azaleas. I don't know that I've ever seen a roadie here, but azaleas are part of that same group. So that's a, one of the things you brought up, I thought that was important is to look for plants in bud, but not in full flower number one, and also buy stuff that isn't always flowering like hellebores. By the time hellebores are flowering in the store, we're almost at the end of hellebore season. So you want to buy them early if you can, so you can get some blooms this year, or you can go ahead and buy them and then, you know, you'll see blooms next year. Another good example in Oklahoma are crepe myrtles. Crepe myrtles, I think are kind of complicated to buy in Oklahoma because they just look like sticks until July and then they'll get flowers on them. And, but even then you don't know how tall those crepe myrtles are. So that's another one where you should use your phone, figure out what the cultivar is. And is it a short one or is it one of the ones that's going to get 20 feet tall and don't plant it under the eave of your house. I visit more people with crepe myrtles that are, you know, want to be 10 foot tall trees and they're right under the eaves of your house. Well, here, crepe myrtles are sold as a flowering plant in late July, August when they're in flower. And as we've talked before, it's never going to be in. Well, they're going to be 
a shrub in Indiana and they're going to be, you're looking for root hardy because you have to cut them back and they'll spring back, but it's just going to be a big shrub. And it's going to take a really long time and be blooming really late in your season because your season isn't as long as ours. Mine's a month longer season. Right. So, and another thing is some plants that are really popular in summertime and they bring, they have them at the stores in bloom. Do you really want to dig a hole and baby that plant through the rest of summer? You do not. And that that's kind of a sad thing because you do. And, you know, around here going into the grocery store is sort of like this trap mm-hmm. because they'll have some of these summer blooming things. And it's like, this isn't a great time to put that into the ground, but it's not. And believe me, we've all done it. So now we're going to talk about checking for signs of disease for insects. Yeah. Just kind of look and see if the plants don't look healthy or they don't look well cared for, just turn around, walk away. There are better places to shop. Right. And you can find other plants that'll be great. So know that. And then also know your state's invasive plant list. We're going to link to an article I just did for um, Oklahoma Living that is about our state's invasive plant list. And um, I have links in that article to all of Oklahoma's. And then Carol can tell you about Indiana too. Yeah, I'll provide a link. Uh, We actually have laws that some plants are illegal to sell now. And so I think it was uh, a couple of springs ago, I was at a hardware store, starts with an M, and they had a do not sell an Indiana plant. And I told the lady, I said, by the way, it's illegal to sell this in Indiana. You know, I just kind of smiled and said, you might want to take these off the shelf for now until you sort that out. And she's like, okay. So that was nice of you to tell her. (laughs) I'll, I'll yeah, she says, I'll tell the manager. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, that was smart. They don't know. They're, you know, they, they don't know. So yeah, why would they know? They you know, I mean, it's just a small, it's a small deal. And that's another reason that nurseries are awesome because usually they don't sell those, but you never know. Okay. And then vegetable plants quickly. Um, yeah, you don't want them to be too leggy, although you can plant tomatoes really, really deep. Yep. That's so that's okay. You can't do that with peppers. Right. And um, you don't want any blooms or small fruit. I know so many people who buy those, you know, those deals that are there every year. And it's like a tomato plant, like a patio tomato plant. And it's just covered with tomatoes and they buy that. Uh huh. And that's usually a determinate variety. And those are all the tomatoes you're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. You do want to Nip it, nip it in the yeah. bud, so to speak, nip off those flowers and, you know, make the plant grow a little bit more before it starts producing. That's all I got to say about that. Okay. Moving on to our book. You have a quote. I do. Writing in English is the most ingenious torture ever devised for sins committed in previous lives. The English reading public explains the reason why. And that's James Joyce. I only picked it because he's an Irish writer. I think that's funny, though, because writing in English is hard because it's it's a, you know, it's a mutt language. Um, okay, so on the bookshelf, I got a book called Edible Plants, a photographic survey of the wild edible, edible botanicals of North America by Jimmy W. Fike. And um, I was sent this by a university press. I should look and see which university, but it's a university press. Anyway, it is a really cool book. It's not your normal book. It's not really a gardening book. It's really photographs. And um, the photo, he's so Jimmy Fike, he's a photographer and an artist. 
And he traveled all over the United States to learn more about native wild plants, edible ones. And he took 12 years to make this book happen. I think it was supposed to come out earlier than it did. Um, but, you know, COVID kept things from coming out. And he lives, or he did live. Okay, so actually this is published by Red Lightning Books. That's who published it. He, um, I'm looking to see. Yeah, it was copyrighted in 2021. And I think it actually came out in September of 2021. I just got the book the other day. So I don't know if it was on a slow boat from somewhere or what. But the point is, he, he lives in Phoenix, Arizona. He's not a botanist, but he's a conceptual artist. And he decided after he moved to Phoenix, he thought it was just going to be the desert. And he realized how many native plants that you can eat are in the desert. Really? That's what started him on this journey. Yeah. And so he traveled all over the U.S. and um, identified the plants. He dug them up because a lot of the plants have their root balls and roots. See the roots? I'm showing it to Carol. I see the roots. Um, Because he wanted those too. Then he takes them inside his... He took the whole plant, stuck it down and kept it from wilting, took it inside his, um, I don't know, his place where he works. Studio. studio. Yes. Thank studio. you. Studio would be studio. good. Took him to his studio and then he put them on uh, plain paper, plain white paper, and then he would photograph them. So I think they look like botanical illustrations that have now been turned into photographs, but they're pieces of art. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. Um, and so like this one is asparagus, asparagus officinalis. And, um, you know, obviously it's cultivated, but there's also wild asparagus. And so I just thought it was one of the prettiest books I've reviewed all year. Each photograph ends up having a black background because of Photoshop. And um, pictures look good against black backgrounds. That's why a lot of us use black backgrounds in our gardening talks. And um, it's just pretty cool. It's got over 100 photographs. He tells about the plant and then he selectively colorized the pictures so that they look like the plant really looks in real life. Cool. And so he tried to highlight the edible part of the plant. And that's, that's as much as I know about this book. I think it's beautiful and I'm glad I got it. It does sound beautiful. It sounds like something our friend Ellen Zakos, the backyard forager, would be interested in. And actually, I'm I'm glad you said that. And she probably won't listen to this because she doesn't really listen to podcasts, even though she has a podcast. Um, I'm probably going to take this to her when I go see her in May because Bill and I are going there in May for it. Yeah, she would love it. She would love it. She would. Because, you know, she likes to forage for her food and find those edible native plants. She does. And she has a great newsletter that she puts out once a month. And then she and CL Fornari have a great podcast too. Okay. Well, that is an interesting book. I shall, uh, I might check that out from the library. Edible Plants, a photographic survey of the wild edible botanicals of North America by Jimmy W. Fike. I'm ready to do the next quote. Do it, D. Always remember to forget the things that made you sad, but never forget to remember the things that made you glad. Irish blessing. Well, there's definitely um, some things lately in the news to make us sad. So it's good to get away from the news uh-huh. and go out in your garden and go out in the sunlight. Even if, it, if you can't garden yet, if it's a sunny day, go spend 30 minutes out there to boost your mood. And actually, this quote was, I did have an Irish curse. And I thought, ah, that's uh-huh. not really us. So I took it off and I said, I'll just go back. Good. To I'm glad you did. There was a, <laughs> I don't know, something about 
Never. I don't remember. It was a curse. And I thought, oh, we're not doing. <laughs> we don't curse. need. We don't need any curses. So I found some <laughs> dirt for us. So uh-huh. Queen Elizabeth II is celebrating her 70th year on the throne, which is amazing. But that's not the longest that any monarch has been a monarch, by the way. It's the longest English monarch, right? Just, but not the longest monarch. It's the, yeah, there's a French king that became the Dauphin or whatever. And when he was four and he was. He was the Dauphin. Dauphin. Because if he because if he was the Dauphin, he's a girl. Okay. But, Dauphin. Okay. So he. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, go ahead. So I found an article, just kind of fun to read. It says five ways to design your garden like the Royals. And so I I just feel like this is going to be a theme this spring and summer. Oh yeah. All kinds of stuff. Cause the, you know, you have to admire somebody like the queen. So they have said grow the queen's favorite flower, which is not a Viola Lily of the Valley. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. You can grow the queen's favorite flower as long as Lily of the Valley isn't invasive in your area. It's not invasive in my area and it's not invasive in Carol's. Not really. And then it says provide shelter or a pavilion in your garden because the queen, she always has garden parties and they have a pavilion. Uh, Can provide a more modern feel or maintain a traditional theme, however you want it, but it's a place to have a party. Fun. Uh, have, Have water features. Yeah, soothing sights and sounds, and she talks about the talks about at Hyde Park and Kensington Gardens. They have all kinds of water features. They do this thing. You're you're not going to like uh-uh. topiary. I really hate topiary, but that's just a personal thing. Yeah, and so topiary is obviously very big in I'll say traditional English gardens. So they have that. They suggest using lavender as a topiary. Lavender makes a great topiary. And the one topiary I have had is Spanish lavender. I had it in pots and it looked great. And I let Home Depot's grower grow it for me. And then I just let it flower in my garden. It was really kind of fun. Cool. And then the last thing is grow delphiniums. Delphiniums are the most popular. It's such a popular flower in UK. They do it so well. They don't do well. Here, I think you have to buy the plant almost every year. And so I I signed up for this newsletter, and I believe the place is called Graceful Gardens. Mm-hmm. And one of our listeners over in Ohio told me, because she grows these great delphiniums, and she sent me pictures, and they're just like eye-poppingly gorgeous. I'll send you one. I've got a great one that's blue in this guy's garden in Europe. So this, you know, also the Prince of Wales apparently likes delphiniums. So I am tempted to try to get some really nice delphinium plants to try, you know, because I want to be like, I want to be like royal. I want to have a royal garden. Well, here you can just grow larkspur and pretend it's, (laughs) pretend it's the fancy delphiniums. (laughs) There you go. So that, that is in uh, country living and we will put a link to that because it's just kind of fun to read and probably is not going to be our last mention of the queen on her jubilee year. No, I love the queen. So we can, we can talk about the queen as much as you want to, as far as I'm concerned. She's 95 years old and impressive. Impressive. Very impressive. So here's our last quote of the day. May your days be many and your troubles be few. May all God's blessings descend upon you. May peace be within you. May your heart be strong. May you find what you're seeking wherever you roam. Irish blessing. Yes. And our families, I don't know about your family, but my family and Bill's family are Irish. So 
We, you know, I did one of those ancestry things and um, every time the thing comes back and says, we have refined your, your ancestry, I am less and less Irish and more and more Scottish. Well, there you go. Um, okay. Rabbit holes. I didn't write down a rabbit hole. I don't have one yet. So, I mean, we just, <laughs> we just two, met two after, weeks ago. So, I mean, two days ago. Two so days ago. Yeah, yeah. So I don't really have one, but you found one. Oh, good Lord. It's more about Barbara Pym. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm you're sorry. Nothing, you're nothing if not obsessive about a couple of things. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be obsessive, but, you know, after complaining about her last week, Okay. I did find two more Barbara Pym books oh, okay. and I thought, you know what? I'm so close to having read every book she wrote, which like with the other author that I really like, D.E. Stevenson, who always has a happy ending. You, She wrote so many books, it'd be hard to read all of them. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I found two more and I thought, well, I need to have something to read in between these Barbara Pym books, you know, like read a chapter of Barbara Pym. And so I thought, well, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. I'll read Helen Dillon, The Irish Gardener. Mm -hmm. I have two of her books. I have uh, On Gardening, which is a collection of her weekly garden columns from 1992 to 1995. And then her other book is called Down to Earth with Helen Dillon, and it's from 2007. Mm -hmm. And I would call it more of a traditional gardening book. It's got like pictures and stuff. But she's pretty funny and has a sharp wit. And so... Here's the thing, Dee, which mm-hmm. I don't understand about myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I've mentioned before that I've heard her speak. And by the way, I think she was born in Scotland, and, but she's an Irish gardener. Mm-hmm. I, I heard her speak in Indianapolis. Right. And it has group. to be around. Yeah. It has to be around the time of 2007 when Down to Earth came out. And she probably was on a tour back when Gardner Writers went on tours that people paid for. Yeah, back when they used to pay us. Uh-huh. So I have her book. And I think to myself, how come this book ain't signed? Did I, I buy it later? Did I not have the sense to buy it there? I don't even remember them selling them there. And I was like, why, why isn't this thing signed? <laughs> That's funny. Oh, well. Okay, so I have a challenge for you just to try. And then you can decide if you want to do it or not. You've already read okay. you've already read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I have. I th- Maggie O'Farrell is an Irish female author and she's really good. And I've been trying to get you to yes. read This Must Be the Place for a long time. And there's I'm now looking at all of her stuff. She has like 10 books. And since you liked Hamnet, I just think you might try one of Maggie's other books to give you a little bit of less Barbara Pym. Well, okay. Because I think (laughs) I'll have to go back and look. I'm almost positive. I'm going back to my Libby app here. Did you read this as the, did you read this as the place? No, I didn't. But for you, D, I will. I really, really thought it evoked Ireland in such a beautiful way. And I read it because a friend challenged me to read it. And I listened to part of it when I would walk on the treadmill. And then I would also, you know, um, read it. And I, it's long, but it's a really, really good. I don't, really, really I good don't one. mind long. And then you, 
And then you told me another book that you read this week that I wanted you to just talk about for a second. Yes. That kind of ties into things you read. Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life by Tish Harrison Warner. That is a lovely book. And I want you to just, yeah, talk about that for just a second, because we're in the season of Lent when we all try to improve ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is uh, the subtitle is Sacred Practices practices in everyday life. And this book, I think, came out in 2016. Uh-huh. And it just says in the back, and I I listened to the audio version, and then I thought, I liked it. I will buy the actual mm-hmm. book. So it says, in overlooked moments and routines, we can become aware of God's presence in surprising ways. How do we embrace the sacred in the ordinary and the ordinary in the sacred? And so each chapter looks at something that the author does during the day from making her bed brushing her teeth, losing keys, and kind of takes a um, spiritual twist on it and talks about small practices and habits that form us. It's also very, it's very good. And the author is a campus minister, an Anglican priest, friend, wife, mother. Um, It's very good. I enjoyed it. Okay, so I just downloaded it from the library. I'm going to read it. I'm reading another book right now, too, um, as part of my um, well-read mom series, and I'll have to go look it up because I just started it and I don't remember the title, but maybe I can talk about that next week. Yeah, you can talk so, about it because now you got me looking up this Maggie O'Farrell's book. This is the place. Is that what it's called? Yeah, this is the place. I really loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't tell you anything about it right now. I just know it's written from a woman's point of view. So I'm going to talk about my garden commission for this week while you look that up. Okay, go ahead. So I'm just trying to keep the plants in the greenhouse alive. We're in that stage where everything's growing again. And so um, I fed a few things with a liquid organic fertilizer, which made the whole greenhouse kind of smell like fish, but that's okay. Um, it'll, it goes away. It's just a matter of trying to keep the bug pressure down, which I use um, a couple of organic sprays to work on. And then on top of that, and then I try to keep everybody watered so nobody gets dried out, which I'm going to have to go do that after I get off with you here today because I've got seeds sprouting. And it's next week, I'll be starting my tomato and pepper seeds. I'm telling that for all the people who have asked me, when are you going to start your tomato and pepper seeds? I've been working on a garden post um, um, for the blog, and I'll try to get that finished today or tomorrow too. That's my garden commission. That's a good commission. I just found... um... It's this must be the place. That's the name of the yes. book. Yes, and it's a good it's a good book. So, what are you going to do this week? Well, and so now I, my problem is I can't put the audio book on hold because I have too many holds. So now I got to go figure out some of these holds. It's like, well, I'm really not as interested as I thought. So I got to clean that up. So my garden commission is to clean up my hold list at the library. <laughs> and actually, that's a good one. I want to get through the cold snap and then I'm going to keep doing some more garden cleanup because, you know, I host a big Easter egg hunt. Um, So I really want to have everything out and ready by April the 17th, which by the time we drop this would be just a month. Wow. Sounds like a lot of time, but, you know, it's not, you know, so I, I got to get going on some garden cleanup, even though they say. You should leave everything until it's consistently 50 degrees because that's when the bugs will start coming out. And I was like, no. Yeah. Caroline got time for that. Caroline <laughs> got time that. for that. I got I do my do best. It. No. Yeah. It's too big a garden. I, it takes me some time to get it done. 
Um, you know what you reminded me of? I'm going to clean out my pots this week because if I get them cleaned out, then it's a whole lot easier to plant them for spring when that time comes. Yes. And, you know, cleaning out pots, if you're like me, you get the hose out and the spraying all over. And it's like, that's like a job you want to go out in your nasty, dirty Grubbies. clothes, get it done. Yeah. And then immediately go in and clean up and take a shower. And, you know, so that's a good thing to just get out there and do once. Yep. All right. Well, that is it. We want to thank you for listening to The Garden Angelus. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about us. Also, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss anything. And if you listen to Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast with your gardening friends? Word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there. Yes, and be sure and check out our show notes for links for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. And if you want to help support us, use those affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we're in a small commission and it costs you nothing. Don't forget to wait just a few more seconds so that you can get the bonus content to let you know how our gardens fared during the cold snap. But it was lovely to chat with all of you over the garden gate today. Bye until next week. Bye, everybody. Okay, Dee, how'd you get through the freeze? I didn't do anything, Carol. I just let it sit out there. And, you know, it came through pretty good. Except I take that back. I did put the roses in the greenhouse after all. And they did not totally break dormancy because they were only in there a day. It snowed. It froze. I brought them back outside. So far, so good, except for one thing to think about that I'm going to do differently. We took all the leaves off of the beds pretty early this year, and we shouldn't have done that because some of my daffodil foliage looks really bad. So, you know, it didn't have the leaves around the daffodil foliage to protect them. Right. So we learned from that and we'll do something different next year. Anyway, that's what's going on here. So my violas and pansies. Yeah. Everything that I could pick up and move, I just put into the garage. I set it in the bed of the truck. Yeah. And then I mulched up a whole bunch of uh, broom corn stalks and put those as a mulch on top of the violas that I couldn't move. Right. And, you know, everything came out okay. Even the stuff that was outside. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it looked a little ragged for a day or two, but it's warming up. And so... Will I plant my pansies and violas as early next year? Probably if they're ready. <laughs> well, you haven't planted them yet, right? Or did you plant them? Oh, no, they're all planted. Oh, my. Well, there you go. You're really fast. And even the ones in the ground. So it just goes to show that things are pretty tough. Things are pretty tough. I'm headed back to the greenhouse for snapdragons and alyssum. And with that, it really is goodbye now. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.